Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. Before Martin Luther, there was a man named Augustine of Hippo. He was a college professor in northern Africa around uh, the Alexandrian regions who during his younger years was infamous for this wild lifestyle that he lived. He spent most of his time on money and prostitutes and on alcohol and he lived a wild life and all of this eventually led him to a place where he felt a deep sense of emptiness. A lot like Solomon said in the Ecclesiastes, he said, vanity, vanity, all of this stuff is vanity. I've had everything that the world would say I need to be happy and all of it is vanity. In the end, it doesn't satisfy. As he was walking through some gardens one day praying for a deeper sense of purpose, he heard a little girl just over the hedges in this garden that was singing an ancient hymn back then, and the words went something like this, take up the book and read, take up the book and read, O sinner, take up the book and read. So he rushed home and he grabbed a scroll of Romans that he had in his library, and he read it and he studied it, and his heart was pierced by the gospel message, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. From that point, he became one of the most foundational theologians that the church has ever had in Christian history. We know him more as St. Augustine of Hippo. St. Augustine is still required reading and required study for any serious student of theology, anyone who wants to be a pastor, anyone who wants to study the word for any type of, of academic credential. John Wesley Many people know his name was an English missionary back in the 1700s who traveled from England to America for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to convert the natives of the American lands. After a few years while he was there, he realized that he had a fruitless ministry and he was feeling further and further from God and was actually beginning to doubt the power of God and doubt the call of God upon his life. So he boarded a ship and he came back home feeling defeated and feeling useless and wondering if any of this was even real. And so when he came back home, he enrolled in this Bible study, and he went into the Bible study at this place called Aldersgate. And as he sat down in the room with only a few other people circled around, he introduced himself, and he said, I went to America to convert the natives, but I'm wondering now who will convert me. And he wrote in his journal later on after that night, a night that would change his life when he said, they opened the book of Romans and we began to read the introduction of Paul's words, the words that you have open in your lap right now. He said, as they began to read that, a warmness came across my heart and reminded me that I had received a full salvation, not a partial salvation that I needed to complete with my works and my fervor, but a full salvation by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, he received assurance of his salvation. And it was out of that moment that the Methodist church began to be born. Hymns began to be written, sermons that we still read and study today, hymns that we still sing and worship the Lord through today. Because of the book of Romans. One more. Samuel Taylor Coleridge was a great poet and a great philosopher back in the 1700s as well. He said that in his literary opinion, the book of Romans is the greatest piece of literature ever written by man. But of course, it wasn't just written by man. He said it is inspired by God. If you've ever been asked, anybody ever been asked the question before, if you were stranded on a desert island and could only take one thing with you, what would you take? Anybody ever been asked that question? Samuel Coleridge is the one who coined that question. 
Or actually, it's because of him, somebody said, he said, if I were stranded on a deserted island and I could only take one thing with me, I would not stop, I would not think, I would not stutter, I would not stammer. Beyond all reasonable, beyond all reasonable understanding, I would take with me the writing of the book of Romans. Not a Zippo lighter, not a flint and steel, not a cell phone to, get, to call for help. I would take the book of Romans. So, now that we've wet our appetite a little bit, especially if you're a history buff, you probably really have your appetite wet for the book of Romans, but I, I say that to help us understand this. The book of Romans is a, a book that is as fresh for today as it has been for centuries and the centuries that it was penned ago. And it's still fresh today as well. And it has that same revival power. It has that same renewing power. It has that same saving power because it is not just the work of Paul. It is the very words of God. And so this morning as we read verses 1 through 7, we're going to read the introduction to this book. Let's read this morning. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all of the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, this morning I pray that you would speak loud and clear. Human words will fail. But I pray this morning that you will give us that sense of awe and wonder and reverence for this holy God that we worship. We thank you this morning and Holy Spirit work. Hide me behind the cross. Hinder me from saying anything that would hinder your word today. Bless this time in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> there are really only two types of people in this world. First of all, well, there's probably three types of people. How many of you like to read? We got a whole lot of different entertainment options and things now and different ways of getting knowledge. Uh, but for centuries, if you wanted to get knowledge, you pretty much had two ways. You experienced it or you read about people who experienced it, right? Now we got YouTube videos and TikTok videos and how-tos and TED Talks and movies and all kinds. You don't want to read the book, you can, you can watch the movie and all this type of stuff. So maybe there's three types of people in this world. There's people who like to read and people who don't like to read. And of the people who like to read, there's two types of people in the world. Those who read the introductory pieces... Okay? And those animals who just skip straight to chapter one and start reading as though there were nothing that existed beyond that. Are you a read to chapter one type of person? Just jump right to chapter one? How many of you read the introduction, the preface, the table of contents, the publisher's remarks, the ISBN number? No, I'm not I'm going a little bit. I, I used to be a person who just wanted to dive in and read chapter one. Let's go. You know, I'm like, why waste my time on the introduction? Why waste my time on the preface? If they really counted, they would actually number those in the pages in the book instead of giving those little Roman numerals at the bottom. Until I got to college, my freshman year of college at Cumberland College, it's now University of the Cumberlands, I had two professors. One was a science, or one was a, my English professor, and the other one was my, uh, was my history professor. Both of them were married. It was Mr., uh, it was Dr. Fish and Mrs. Fish, okay? Both of the fishes, and they both said, on our very first day, make sure that when you read the book, you read the introduction of the book because they believed that that is where you got the groundwork and set the tone and whet your appetite for everything. You understood the author better. You understood where they were coming from. You understood everything about that. 
And so they made sure that we had read the introduction and the preface because a lot of the questions on the first exam came from the introduction and the preface of the, of the required reading. So I thank them for my habit of reading the introduction. But I learned a valuable thing. The introduction almost always helps you gain valuable information that sets the tone for the rest of the book. And you won't get as much, I believe, out of the book if you don't read the foundational material. The passage that we read this morning is actually Paul's introduction to the book of Romans, these seven verses. Every book of the Bible pretty much, especially in the epistles, has a formal introduction to it where it outlines who's writing the book, what the book is going to be about, or the need for that letter to be written. And it sets the tone for everything. So the title of the message today as we begin this journey is, We Must Always Read the Introduction. In these seven verses, we get encapsulated in these seven verses, a great understanding of what the next 16 chapters of this book are going to really be about. So it's important that we understand the introduction and we get to know everything that's in it. So first of all, the introduction will always help us to get to know the writer of the book. Now, first of all, what we have to understand when we're reading scripture and we talk about the writer, there's a lot of writers. There's about 40 writers that we know about, people that penned the works that became scripture, but there's only one holy author and that is the spirit of God. God moved upon people to write the scripture. We see different attitudes. We see different personality traits come through, the individual personalities of the writers, but God in his spirit gave them the words to write. That is why we can trust the word to be true, to be holy, and to be trusted. If we can't, if it's just what Paul thinks, well, things can change over time. He's restricted only to his knowledge of that certain time and that certain era and that certain place. But God, who sits sovereign above all, can inspire someone who's limited in their knowledge to give us a work that we can trust from the beginning of time to the end of time and beyond the end of time. That's why the Bible is special. But Paul is the writer here. We see it in verse number one, and we're just going to start picking this apart, right? So we see here the very first word is Paul. He's saying, I am Paul. I'm the one who writes this. It helps us to get to know him by his other name, Saul of Tarsus. If we want to know much about Paul, and we talk about Paul a lot in church, but if we want to know about Paul, we have to know who he was before he became Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. The Saul of Tarsus had a pretty privileged life. Okay? He, was, he had a dual citizenship, which was very rare at that point. He was a Roman citizen, but he was also of Jewish heritage and was a Jewish citizen as well. He had a mother who was Jewish and a father who was Roman, and so therefore he was born with citizenship in both both places, which meant he was respected both by the Jews and also by the Romans. So he had a pretty privileged life and a pretty privileged position to be in. Also, we know that he was from Tarsus, and Tarsus was a pretty wealthy city. Most of the people that lived there that were not slaves were pretty wealthy, pretty privileged there, and he was freeborn. He was not from a slave family, which gave him the access to some of the best resources and the best education around. But Saul of Tarsus was not just a freeborn Roman, he was also a Pharisee in the Jewish tradition. So he was highly trained in Jewish law. He was highly trained. When we talked about the, the, the disciples back in the day that they didn't make it through Torah school, all right, so that's like the equivalent of they didn't finish high school, I guess you could say. They kind of dropped out of school and went on to work and became blue-collar fishermen and all those types of things. Paul is exactly the opposite of that. Paul is like your elite. Everybody looks at him and thinks you're smart. He just oozes genius as he walks around, all right? Um, he was trained by Gamaliel. 
Um, he was highly respected among the Jewish kids. So he's kind of like this Ivy League Rhodes Scholar who graduated top of his class from Harvard Law. And everybody wants to be like him and everybody respects him. And he walks and he just breathes different kind of air. And actually in the book of Philippians, Paul actually said this. He said, I was a Pharisee, but I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. Meaning I was the Pharisee that everybody looked at and said, you're going to be it one day. Once Gamaliel's off the scene, you're going to be Gamaliel. People can be studied at the feet of Saul, of Tarsus instead. So Saul was very good at knowing the law. He was very good at keeping the law. And he was so good at keeping the law that he became convinced that Christianity and all the people who followed Jesus, and Jesus was a poison and a pariah to everything that made things work in Jewish society. And so he decided to spend his time hunting down and bringing Christians to justice. As a Jewish citizen and as a Roman citizen, he saw a Christian as a violation of Jewish code of ethic and law, but also as a Roman citizen, he saw him to be a threat to Roman power. So he hated Christians. We're reading a book that is written by a guy who for the, who for the early part of his life before Jesus hated you and me, wanted us dead. But yet this becomes a work that is so transformative to all of us. There are most of us in here today Quote this thing called the Romans wrote to salvation or know the Romans wrote to salvation. Maybe when you trusted Christ, you listened to the words out of the Romans road that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Understand that when we hear those verses, those are written by Paul, but he was Saul of Tarsus who hated everything about that. This is the transforming power of God. In the very first word of the book, we're seeing the transforming power of God at work and on display. How did Saul of Tarsus become Paul the missionary? Before we vary, we have to understand something very important that we need to apply to our lives by looking at Saul of Tarsus. Religion can make us really bad people. When you take religion alone and you isolate it, it can make us spiritual jerks. It really can. There are a lot of people who know a lot about God and a lot about faith and a lot about this book, but it hasn't penetrated the soul yet. And until it does, we're still miles away from grace. See, religion caters, J.D. Greer says, to the worst parts of us, to pride, to self-centeredness, to judgmentalism, to self-righteousness, and to bigotry, which is why religious people are a lot of times the worst. And all God's people said amen to that, right? Let's be honest. We, we, we've we've got to own up to some things. Right? So the question is, how did Saul Tarsus become Paul the missionary? On a bounty hunting trip to Damascus, as he was going with seething rage and grit and bared teeth, hoping to find Christians along the way that he could bring to death and take into the Colosseum and have them ripped apart by lions and tigers and bears. He was knocked off his ride. I don't know if it was a camel. I don't know if it was a donkey or a mule or if it was a, if it was a Honda Accord. He was knocked onto the road and a voice from heaven calls down to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it's the voice of Jesus Christ. From that point on, he came to understand a power that he had never known before. Because up until that point, Paul or Saul of Tarsus was walking the same road as Martin Luther of Germany trying to get to God by all the things he could do. He was smarter than everybody. He was richer than everybody. He was more educated than everybody. He knew the law better than everybody. He was a goody-goody two-shoes. And he thought, me and God are cool until he met the Son of God. See, if all you know is God, but you haven't met the Son, you and God ain't good yet. 
Paul meets the Son of God on the road and he realizes all these things that I've been doing to try to lift myself up and bring myself to God. I need to get to the cross. I need to get to the cross of Calvary. And Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the missionary. He went from persecuting Christians to preaching to them. He went from serving the law to serving Christ. He went from hating Jesus to loving him and giving him his entire life and his being. See, because the gospel of grace produces in us a fundamentally different spirit than zealousness in religion does. Religion makes us proud and self-centered, but the gospel will make us humble and generous. And that's exactly what happened to Paul. We're only one word into Romans, by the way, and I've only got 13 minutes left in the message. And we're going to go through seven verses, so I hope you packed a lunch. So this is Paul. Let's consider how Paul describes himself. First, he says, I am Paul. He says what? He says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. A servant of Jesus Christ. The word servant comes from the Greek doulos, which means a slave or the lowest of the low. Now, the slave system, we hear that word slave, and we think about that in our culture. We think of the chattel slavery that was based upon your ethnicity and where you came from, or actually where you were captured from and brought over, and you, weren't vo you didn't volunteer. You were captured and placed into that. That's not how Roman slavery worked a lot those days. A lot of times, Roman slavery was voluntary. If you had a debt that you couldn't pay, you would enter into a time of slavery to pay off a debt to the person you owed. Or, if you had committed a crime, the, the proconsul would decide would let you know or say you could go into slavery or you could go into prison and you could pay off your debt to society that way. So when they read, I am Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, they understood it wasn't somebody who had been captured against his will by Jesus Christ, but someone who had been pursued by grace and had the opportunity to serve Jesus Christ. See, there's a big difference Jesus is not a master that puts us under his thumb. Jesus is a master who respectfully calls to all that will come and find life and being and purpose in him. Paul had a great purpose and had a great life, uh, humanly speaking, outside of Christ. But when he came to Christ, he realized that even though his life was now turned upside down on its head, it was far better than the one that he had where he had every foundation and every benefit and every privilege that the world could offer him. That's what becoming a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ does for us. For Paul, a rich guy with dual citizenship, highly respected in the academic community, highly respected by the religious people, highly respected by the Christian haters, for him to trade all of that in and say, I'm going to serve Jesus Christ, was a huge condescension for him to say, I am now a slave. See, as a Pharisee, he thrived on being better than everyone else and being more popular than everyone else. And everybody looking at him saying, oh my gosh, if I could just be like Paul. We talk about celebrity preachers today in our culture. Paul was the celebrity of celebrities. People were quoting him on Twitter all the time. Matter of fact, we still quote him on Twitter. I, I can't really say that we're any different, but they loved him. But his zeal in religion was aimed to elevate himself above everybody else and feel more righteous. But this would cause him, and this would cause him to be judgmental and cold and non-charitable and skeptical of everyone who didn't think the way that he did. But now as a servant, he is gracious. Now as a servant, he is self-denying. Now as a servant, he sees the world differently. Instead of condemning someone in their sin, saying that they're getting what they deserve, he looked with compassion on them because he remembered that he did the same thing. Instead of hoarding up his wealth because he earned all that he had and he lived with his hands open looking for opportunities to help somebody who had need. See, even Paul's decision to change his name shows an attitude shift. 
See, the word Paul is, is the actual, actually the Latin version of his name. It was the Roman version of his name. What's interesting is Paul in Latin and in Roman culture means little or small, which would help us to understand why Paul went by Saul, right? Because in the Jewish culture, what was Saul? Well, it reminded you of the great king of Israel who was head and shoulders above everybody else. He was the strongest. He was the wisest. He was, I mean, he was just the best. But what was wrong with Saul? He didn't follow God. Because he was the biggest and the strongest and the best, he relied on all of that to be what he needed. And what's interesting to me is, as Saul of Tarsus, he rested in his strength and found out that his strength was not strong enough to keep him on his horse when Jesus came a-calling. And after a meeting with Jesus, he's like, I don't mind to be Paul the small. Because in Jesus, I have everything I need. Has that transformation happened to you? Has the grace of God brought you to a place of humility? Has it brought you to a place of awe of what Jesus is and who he is? That he is everything? That he's the centerpiece? So the thing about Jesus is he didn't have to knock Paul off that horse. But because Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus was compelled to seek and to save Paul or Saul and make him Paul. And let me tell you something. There was, some, there was probably no one more religious, no one more righteous in self than Saul. But he was still lost. That's why Jesus came to him. That's why Jesus comes to us. That's why Jesus calls to us because without him we are lost. See, the attitude of many Christians today is one of self-centeredness. It's one of, that's not about self-denial. We think about me first, the way I want them to be. Not self-denial. It's one of selfishness, not generosity. It's one of judgment not con and condescension, not grace and compassion self-righteousness and not humility. The truth is we need a whole lot more small Pauls and a whole lot fewer strong Sauls within the church today. Paul was also called an apostle moving right along today, aren't we? Paul was also called an apostle. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle. The word apostle simply means to be called out to testify. Now, to be qualified as an apostle back in those days, there were, only, there, were, there were a lot of disciples, but there were 12 apostles. And then Paul was also considered an apostle because he had seen Jesus' work in his ministry. And he had heard the voice of Jesus, although it was a, a disembodied voice from heaven. But here it meant he was called out to testify. It basically means that he was called by God, of God, of Jesus. What we need to understand as the church of Jesus Christ, that we have an apostolic spirit within us as well. If you've been saved, you have answered the call of grace. When Jesus said, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Out of Matthew, when you hear that call and when you answer that call to salvation, you have been, you've received that apostolic spirit. You have been called and not only called, you have been called to testify, to be a witness of Jesus Christ. So Paul said, instead of being a witness to my greatness, my life is going to be about being a witness to his greatness. And then Paul says this, I'm set apart to preach the gospel. I'm set apart to preach the gospel of God. Now remember about Paul's life before. What was Paul's life all about before? The best grades, the best school, the best food, the best everything. 
Now, what's his life about? It's all about the gospel. All I want to be known for as Paul is to be known as the, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to look at this today. What do we want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? What do you want to be known for? Everybody wants to go viral, right? Everybody wants to be famous today, it seems like. Especially if you're in, into social media or things like that or YouTube, and everybody's hoping, man, this video may go viral, and all of a sudden everybody's going to know who I am and know my name. That's wonderful. But what are you going to use that, what are you going to use that platform for? What are you going to use it for? Are you going to use it to make you look good? Because you make you look good and your greatness may last for a generation or two or three. And if you're lucky enough to get your name in the history books, people may study you until there's a cultural revolution and they say you're bad. What's going to happen if you live your life for the gospel of Jesus Christ? You're going to have a personal effect that will reverberate for all of eternity. Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Each one of us who know Christ has a family tree or a holy heritage that traces all the way back to Jesus. Someone shared the gospel with you who had the gospel shared with them, who had the gospel shared with them, who had the gospel shared with them, who had the gospel all the way back to when the gospel started. That's significance. That's purpose. I'm going to be involved in something that's going to reverberate for eternity. I hope that when I'm long gone, if the Lord tarries his coming, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, my great-great-grandchildren, and their friends and their families will know Jesus Christ because somewhere along the way, there was a guy named Derek Holmes who they may have never met, that they may have a little molecule of blood flowing through their veins and DNA, but more important than that DNA flowing through their veins will be the spiritual DNA of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I preached without apology and shared. And every one of us have that call to us as well. Paul said, I'm a servant and I'm apostle of Jesus Christ. Guess what? We're only doing one point today. Just one point. It's going to be part two of the, of the overview, okay? Y'all just didn't listen fast enough is what it is, all right? The question this morning I ask is what do we want to be known for? What do we want to be known for? Do we want to be known for who we are and the mark we made in whatever industry it is that you're in? Or do we want to be known for the gospel of Jesus Christ? When I die, how many people will have known Jesus because they knew me? When my life is over and all the money I've earned, which because of inflation is not going to seem like pennies to future generations. All the degrees I got, all the fame I got, it's all going to go away. But if there are people that are in heaven one day because of a legacy of the gospel that has been left, that's important. And this is what Paul understood. I'm going to live for something far greater than me. And so I want to just kind of go ahead and give you the fill-in for point number two. Is that number two, reading the introduction helps us to identify the theme. When we look at the introduction of the, of, of the scriptures, uh, of, the, of, of the book of Romans here, we see a theme is already introduced. So Paul introduces himself. He immediately takes the limelight off of who he is and puts it on Jesus Christ. And now he says, here's the theme. The theme is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Every book, every great book has a theme. And the book of Romans has the greatest theme of all. The gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, chapters 1 through 4 of the book that we're going to study gives us the fact that the gospel reveals God's righteousness. We're going to see in chapters 1 through 4 that the gospel will show us that we serve a holy God. In chapters 5 through 8, we're going to see that the gospel makes all humanity new. That it's through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are made new. Chapters 9 through 11 are going to show us that the gospel fulfills God's promises. First to Israel, and then makes new promises and fulfills them to the Gentiles. And then the last part of the book, chapters 12 through 16, we're going to see that the gospel unifies the church in a way that nothing else should or does. We're living in a day-to-day where we're disjointed everywhere, right? There's division, there's strife. There's bickering back and forth. We're just not united as a nation, but I want to I get broader than that. We're not united as the people of Jesus Christ today either. The gospel unites us more than anything else ever could. And it crosses the boundary of nationality. It crosses the boundary of ethnicity. It crosses the boundary of race. It crosses the boundary of age or generation. It crosses all of those things and pulls everything from all of those corners in together to one central spoke, and that is Jesus Christ. So I hope you understand, and I hope you can see through the book of Romans where we're headed and what we're going to see. But more importantly, I want to ask you this as we close this morning. Put yourself in the place of Saul of Tarsus because every one of us As much as we want to say we're Paul, we had a whole lot of time when we were Saul. Before the gospel. How gracious and how grateful are we for the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Who cared enough about us to call out to us. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Derek. Why are you spinning your wheels? Why are you chasing after all of this stuff? Why are you serving yourself and all of these other things? I'm what fulfills. It's only going to be Jesus. You may be watching the day and virtually, and I just pray that the Spirit of God is being conveyed through this as well. You need Jesus. I can't put it any more simply. I wish I could make it a whole lot more eloquent. You need Jesus. And here's the gospel in a nutshell. And I'll say this so many times through this series. You are not enough, but Jesus is. That's the gospel in a nutshell. You are not enough. I am not enough. God knew it. And he sent Jesus because he's not just enough. He's more than enough. And in him, we are enough. So why do we chase after everything else? And and that's the thing. I'd love to say that as as the church of Jesus Christ, we have Jesus and we're fully and completely satisfied in him. But I ask you to really dig down inside. Is that really true of you and me today? Are we truly and honestly completely satisfied in Jesus and Jesus alone? I pray through this series that we will come to that place of satisfaction in him and in him alone. Why? Because he's holy. Because he's the way maker. Because he's the king of kings. He's our everything. So as we bow our heads and as we close our eyes this morning, I just ask you to reflect upon that this morning. Where was your Damascus experience? Where did Jesus call out to you and you realized, I'm not enough, but Jesus is more than enough. If you haven't had that moment in your life, if you have not come to that place, 
then I urge you today to hear the voice of God calling out to you, come home. Come home. If you don't know Christ as yourself, Paul wrote these words. The man, Saul of Tarsus, that would become Paul, wrote these words later on in the book that we're going to study through this series. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That God demonstrated or commended his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then if we will confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but we don't have to live in that fallen state. Because of Jesus, we can be brought to him, brought to that glory, brought to that place. Paul, studying at the feet of Gamaliel, still would have died and gone to hell if he hadn't gone to the foot of the cross and received grace from Jesus. You need Jesus. Today, if you don't know him, would you please pray and ask him to save you? The Bible tells us that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. So if you don't know Christ today, pray a prayer something like this. Lord, I pray that you will be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. As much as I try to cover it, as much as I try to mask it, I know my sin has separated me from you. And I'm tired of spinning my wheels. And I'm tired of trying to climb the ladder. I'm coming to you and I trust you. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. To be my savior. To be my Lord. I trust you to save me. Thank you for your love. Help me to follow you. In Jesus name. If you prayed that prayer. God knows not just your words, but he knows the heart. And by the authority of God's word, he saved you. Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about his grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m. We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.